you know, what a blessing for us as Christians to be able to come together on a weekly basis and just be reminded of the crucifixion, which we're reminded of during communion, and to be reminded of the resurrection, which we just were reminded of in that song. And how good of God to give us this place of refuge. He's called us to be his ambassadors, has he not? To go out in this world as aliens and strangers and to proclaim his message of hope and to share the good news of salvation. But sometimes we can get beat up during the week doing that and kind of get weary of doing that. And sometimes it's frustrating and discouraging and it's, um, and then just trying to live it out ourselves, right, can sometimes uh, not turn out so good in any given week. And so it's just a good to come together and be reminded, be refreshed, refocused, and, uh, and recharged, really, to go out and uh, do it again one more week. And uh, so God is good to give us this time as his people to come together and celebrate and encourage one another to be reminded of the, the good news of the gospel ourselves. Well, in preparation for this series of sermons that I've been preaching on the topic of evangelism, I read this powerful, practical little book by Max Stiles, who's a pastor of a church in Iraq, believe it or not, and uh, it's called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. And it was so compelling to me that I couldn't put it down. In fact, I, I actually read the entire thing in one sitting. And of course, it's small. Don't be overly impressed by that, okay? Maybe a, a few hours, um, you can make it through this. But when I finished, my first thought was, everyone in our church needs to read this book. Because I think this book really scratches where we've been itching. Because it's not just about how to share the gospel with unbelievers. It's about how a church can cultivate a culture of evangelism, where every member is engaged in sharing the gospel with unbelievers in their sphere of influence. And so in our ongoing attempt to excel still more specifically in the area of evangelism, we want to provide a free copy of this book to every family in our church. And uh, we've only done this one other time in the history of our church, in two decades of doing this. Um, when we launched the, the building campaign to raise money to build our first building over there, back in maybe 2001, I think it was, we handed out copies of Randy Alcorn's uh, great little book, The Treasure Principle. I know many of you have read that, um, but we encouraged everyone to read that book and ask the Lord how he wanted them to participate in contributing financially to the building project and in doing so lay up treasure for themselves uh, in heaven and, and also not to have to pay a loan back to a bank. And um, God used that book to help develop a culture of joyful, generous, sacrificial givers here at Lakeside. And so we've been blessed by that for years. And I think our church, generally speaking, is characterized by a joyful, generous, sacrificial giving. Our prayer is that God will use this book to help develop a culture of faithful, 
bold, radical ambassadors for Christ. That uh, as we move forward into the future, that that that's, will become characteristic of the members of our church. In the same way that being joyful and generous and sacrificial in, in your giving, which I think is a characteristic of the members of Lakeside Bible Church, that, that another characteristic of the members of Lakeside Bible Church would be that we would be faithful, bold, radical witnesses or ambassadors for Christ. And so I want to encourage every one of you to pick up a copy of your copy of this book on the way out. They're on the back table there, and I know some of them were being handed out earlier And uh, we only purchased enough, really, for one per family, okay? So husbands and wives are going to have to share, all right? Um, So again, if you're a family unit, and that's how you show up in our directory as this family or that family, if you're kind of on your own, if you're an adult child and you're kind of on your own, then yeah, go ahead and grab this uh, for yourself. But if if you're part of your family, every family gets one copy, and you're just going to have to pass it around, okay? So somebody reads it this afternoon, somebody reads it tonight, somebody reads it tomorrow morning. I'm just kidding, right? You're going to get after this, right? But, um, and, and so pick up your copy, uh, and, and I want to encourage you to do this, okay? Make it your goal to read this book during the month of March. Now, granted, some of you literally could read this book this afternoon, but I'm giving you the whole month, okay? Uh, cutting you some slack here. I'm a nice professor, right? Your homework assignment, you got the whole month to complete it, right? But we really want to encourage you to, to work through this during the month of March. And then more importantly, ask the Lord as you're reading this and after you read this, how you can play a part in helping us cultivate a culture of evangelism here at Lakeside. What is your role? What is your part to play in creating this culture Developing this culture of evangelism here at Lakeside. And uh, those of you who are plugged into one of our grow groups, you will be asked by your grow group leader over the next uh, uh, couple of meetings that you have um, if you're reading the book and how you're being impacted by it. At least that's what we ask the grow group leaders to do so you can hold them accountable, right? Hey, how can you even ask me yet if I'm reading the book? How come you ask me what I'm getting out of it, right? But we've asked the Grow Group leaders to be proactive, to be dilig- uh, um, uh, deliberate and intentional and, and kind of following up, holding all of us accountable to make sure we're actually reading through this book. We've also encouraged our Grow Group leaders that in the months to come, whenever you meet together as a Grow Group, also when you meet one-on-one with members from your Grow Group um, for coffee or a meal, that you get into the habit of asking one another the question... Here it is. Have you had any opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers or to develop relationships with unbelievers and and weave gospel truths into your conversations? It's not about, hey, did you get to share the gospel? Did you get to share the whole gospel? No. It's are you developing, are you deliberately, intentionally pursuing relationships with unbelievers and are you attempting to weave gospel truths into your conversations with the goal of hopefully someday actually getting to share the gospel with them kind of from beginning to end. I mentioned to you a couple Sundays ago that the pastors have started asking each other that question in our weekly staff meetings. And and it's been really healthy for us because we know we're going to have to give an account of how we're doing when it comes to evangelism. And uh, I think that simple question Have you had any opportunities to share the gospel? Have you had the opportunity to build relationships with unbelievers? Have you had opportunities to weave gospel truth into conversations? Um, 
I think that simple question will keep evangelism on all of our radars and, and hold us accountable to what we know is one of the basics of the Christian life. This is one of the, evangelism is one of the basic disciplines of the Christian life. I, I don't know when you got saved or who discipled you right after you got saved, but as a young man, I learned very quickly that there was basically four things that I needed to do as a Christian in order to grow. Number one, to be a faithful Christian. What do faithful Christians do? And, and how do, faithful, how do, how do Christian, young Christians grow to be mature Christians? And you know what they are. What's the, what's the most important thing we can do every day to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ as a Christian? Read the Bible, right? God has given us his word. Um, and, and so we need to read the word and study the word. And, and so that's just a basic discipline of the Christian life. Secondly, I heard somebody else say it. Secondly, what's the second most important thing we do? Pray. That after we spend time in God's word, we need to spend time in prayer. So God speaks to us through his word, and we speak to God through prayer. And so we spend time in the word, we spend time in prayer. And then thirdly, what's an, another important discipline of the Christian life? We're, we're doing it right now. Going to church, right? Spending time with other like-minded believers, being a part of the body of Christ, plugging in to the church. That's number three. And number four is what? Telling other people about Jesus. Witnessing, sharing the gospel, sharing our faith in Christ. Those are the four basic disciplines of the Christian life. And so, are you being faithful to read your Bible? Are you being faithful to pray? Are you being faithful... You're here today. I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the church, if you will, right? You're here. Are you being faithful to share the gospel? There's an interesting little section in here, by the way. Uh, you'll, you'll see it towards the end, how, how we don't necessarily think about this, but sharing the gospel is not just good for the unbelievers. Uh, it's also good for us because it reminds us of what we believe and, and the good news of salvation in our own lives. And so we're helping ourselves to grow uh, and, and to love God more as we are sharing the gospel. We've also encouraged our, our grow group leaders to always include in the corporate prayer time as a grow group, because most grow groups, right, you spend some time in corporate prayer praying for one another, and uh, also in their own personal private prayers uh, for the people in their grow group, we've asked them that they would include the request that God would provide us opportunities to share the gospel with people where we live, work, eat, shop, and go to school. That we need to be regularly praying, Lord, give us opportunities, right? Open doors, as Paul asked uh, his followers uh, uh, or the churches that he planted to pray for him, that the Lord would give him open doors for the gospel, and that he would boldly walk through those doors. And, um, and so we need to be praying that. Ho hopefully you're praying that every morning, as you're getting up and as you're getting ready to go off to school or off to work or off to where, off to shop or off to meet up with some, uh, you know, a play group at the park or something, Lord, give me opportunities to be an ambassador for Christ today. Put your words in my mouth and uh, give me the joy of, of leading someone to Christ. Um, those are just, that should be a, a, a normal, everyday, habitual prayer that we pray as we head out into the world. Um, most importantly, what we've encouraged our grow group leaders to do is to ask God to help them lead by example in their own personal evangelism. 
the point is this, those of us who serve as examples to the flock can expect those that God has called us to lead to do something that we're not modeling for you. The culture of our church can't change and won't change unless the leaders change, right? We've always said that, like leaders, like people, like shepherds, like sheep. That's just the way leadership works, that a church is oftentimes a reflection of the leadership. And so evangelism is is one of those things that just can't be taught. It can't just be taught from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class or an equipping hour. It has to be caught. One of the things, we've been batting around a lot of different ideas as we've talked as pastors and elders and even amongst some of the members of the church that have a passion to see us grow in this area of evangelism. But some of the things we've been talking about uh, doing, in, including in our Sunday services, a monthly evangelism or eva- evangelism moment. We, we have a mission moment. We have a ministry highlight. How about an evangelism moment where, we, where we're able to hear stories, testimonies of people whose lives have been changed and or, or opportunities we've had to tell others about Christ. And again, this is just an opportunity to regularly celebrate salvation and, and, and regeneration and God transforming people's lives and we can champion one another's evangelistic efforts. In other words, and this book talks about it, that we make a big deal about people who are trying to tell others about Jesus. We're like, hey, good for you, good offense, good hustle, way to go, I'm going to pray for you. I want to meet this person, right? I mean, that we make a big deal about that. Something else we'd like to implement at some point here in the future is a special program that we would maybe like to call Ambassador Academy. And uh, this would just serve as a kind of a a class, if you will, a a training time to equip everyone in our church how to share the gospel and also, as part of that, include opportunities to go out witnessing together. Yeah, like, let's go. Let's go do it. Let's go find a public place where people are hanging out and we can just go out and strike up conversations with them and tell them about Jesus. And uh, if I could, I'd take, you to, I'd take you to the Grand Central Station in New York City and teach you how to paint like I learned how and to turn around and start preaching on the street. I mean, it's crazy, but it's, it's exciting. The point is that personal one-on-one evangelism is, is, is far more impactful than all-church attractional evangelism. We talked about that uh, when you think about what does it mean to be a missional church, it's that we don't wait for people to come to us. We don't, we don't expect people to come to us. No, we go out on mission to reach people outside the walls of the church. I think the most effective evangelism happens outside the church, not here on Sunday mornings while evangelism is going on every time we get together Sunday, Wednesday night, because there's always unbelievers, whether it's children, young people, even adults, Right? But the majority of people, statistics show, come to know Christ not through a church service or some special event, but through the personal witness of a friend, neighbor, coworker, or classmate. That's your testimony, though. I should say the majority of your testimony includes someone personally, whether it was a family member, a friend, a coworker, classmate that shared Christ to you, modeled Christ to you. Um, the point is this simply that God wants to use each of us to help others be reconciled to him through a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why all of us 
need to always be prepared to articulate what we believe and why we believe it. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to look at this passage and use it as a launching pad for uh, talking about something that maybe when you first hear it, um, your reaction will be, well, I, I needed a good nap this morning, so I'm going to get one in about half hour now. For the next half hour, I'm going to be able to snooze, snooze a little bit here. Somebody asked me, the guys in the back said, hey, you got a title for your sermon. And I joked with them. I said, yeah, I'm going to talk about apologetic methodology this morning. And I'm like, that sounds like a real snoozer, right? I said, no, let's call it evangelism God's way. Evangelism God's way. Um, Apologetic methodology was the name of the class that I took in seminary. In fact, honestly, when um, I saw it pop up as an option for a summer class and I needed an extra two units, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting, even though I have no clue what that means, apologetic methodology, it's two units, and I need two units, so I'm going to take that class. Well, that class ended up being my favorite class in seminary, and it was just like a a two- or four-week class that I took in the summer, and uh, it revolutionized the way I think, the way I preach, the way I counsel, the way I share the gospel, and so it's really based on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, notice it says, Peter writes, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So Peter's admitting here, acknowledging the fact that whenever we live on mission, when we seek to live holy and righteous lives, zealous for good works, zealous to tell others about Christ. Sometimes people might harm us. There's fear. There's fear. We're intimidated. And so he says, hey, you know what? Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. But, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We mentioned that last week, how to share Christ in a Christ-like way. You do it gently and reverently. But that phrase, I think the heart of this verse is that phrase, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. The Greek word, therefore, make a defense, that phrase, make a defense, is apologia, from which we get our English word, what? Apologetics. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that term. You've heard the term apologetics, which means defending or commending Christianity to those who don't believe. It's oftentimes thought of as arguing or debating, reasoning with people of different faiths and religions. Some well-known Christian apologists in, our, in, in modern times would be C.S. Lewis, Robbie Zacharias, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul, James White, uh, just to name a few. Now, few, if any of us, are as brilliant as these guys, 
And it's unlikely that any of us will be writing any best-selling books or participating in globally simulcasted debates like these men are on regular occasions, right? But imagine, just for a moment, if you were invited to share what you believe and why you believe it in some public forum. For example, for instance, and again, you have to turn your imagination on here. Um, Imagine you were asked to participate in some, let's say, religious awareness event down in Houston. And some city leader maybe knew you or heard of you and they, they reach out to you and they, they share their vision to expose Houstonians to a, the, the wide variety of religious beliefs represented by those living in the fourth largest city in America. And so he's rented space in the George R. Brown Convention Center. He's planning to have someone from every major religion share what they believe and why they believe it. And so he says, how about it? You in? I want you to be the Christian representative. I want you to represent the Christian faith, and I want you to tell people what you believe and why you believe it. Well, you're immediately overwhelmed with fear, and your mind races to think of something, anything that would make it totally impossible for you to do it, right? You want to say no, but you remember a message your pastor just preached on 1 Peter chapter 3 that says you should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, so even though you're scared to death, you say, okay, I'll do it. And you begin to wonder, what in the world am I going to say? How am I ever going to convince people that Christianity is true and that they need to become a Christian? I mean, people these days are so intellectual. I'm not very intellectual. Worse, there's so many skeptics out there. People are so skeptical today and cynical. And so in the weeks leading up to this event, you start doing your homework. I mean, you are studying like a wild man, a wild woman, right? You begin reading books on logic hoping that maybe you can reason with the more intellectual people in the crowd and logically prove to them that there's a God and that the Bible is true. And so you study the rational arguments for the existence of God, like the cosmological argument that every effect has a cause and so there must be a God, and, or the tele- teleological argument that you know, design demands a designer. You know, if you have a watch, that, that means you had a watchmaker. And, and, uh, or the ontological argument that a perfect being is the greatest thing that anyone could ever conceive of and people at all times and in all places have believed in a god or gods and but then you start thinking about all the cynical and skeptical people who won't understand or care about all the rational arguments for the existence of god and why because they want tangible empirical data they they've got to see it to believe it and so you read some books about all the evidence that there is that Christianity is true. And so you grab a copy, that old copy, dusty copy of Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. You pull that off the shelf. You open it up. You start looking through that. And you think to yourself, man, if I can't prove to them logically that God exists and that the Bible is true, I will prove it factually. Because you can't, at the end of the day, you can't argue with the facts. And so you learn about all the scientific historical facts that prove that God exists, the Bible is true, you, you research the law of thermodynamics, that everything goes from a state of order to disorder, um, you, you, um, you know, so that makes evolution ludicrous, and uh, you, you study all the historical evidence for the resurrection, there's more proof that Christ rose from the dead than there is for the majority of other events in history that we just assume are true, um, and then you begin to look into some of the archaeological data, then that all the things that archaeo- all the cool stuff that archaeologists have unearthed over the years that proves the authenticity, the accuracy of the Bible, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. And the more you study, 
the more your faith in God and his word is strengthened and reinforced. This is like a great experience for you. And, and, and the more excited you get to tell people that Christianity is the only religion that makes any sense logically. And, and by the way, there's a ton of evidence to prove it. So the day of the event finally comes. And you and the others who have been asked to present are seated on the platform in front of this huge audience. And as you sit there, you begin to get nervous. And you begin to question, why did I say yes to this um, in the first place? And one by one, the other presenters give a brilliant defense of their religion. There was a Muslim guy, there was a Hindu, there was a Buddhist, there's a Mormon, there's even an atheist. And uh, finally, it's your turn. He left Christianity for last, and so it's your turn to share. And so you walk up to the podium and you look out at the sea of faces, and your mind goes blank. You forget everything that you were going to say. And strangely enough, the only thing that comes into your head at that moment, of all things, is a silly little song that you learned in Sunday school when you were a kid. And so you decide, well, it's better to say something than not say anything. So after what seems like an eternity, you clear your throat and you begin to say, this, you say, I'm a Christian. I've studied a lot about Christianity. I can stand up here and reason with you and prove to you logically that God exists. I can list all sorts of facts and figures that provide irrefutable evidence that the Bible is true. But I only have one thing to say to you today. Jesus loves me. This I know or the Bible tells me so. And you go back to your seat and you wish you could just disappear. <laughs> you think, how embarrassing. Boy, I had this opportunity of a lifetime and I biffed it. Well, let me encourage you. If you would be embarrassed to say that that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, to the most intellectual, skeptical audience you can imagine, then you don't understand what the Bible teaches about how to defend your faith in Jesus. I've told you this before, that when I was in high school, I was one of those jerks for Jesus that I was talking about last week, where I was just kind of a rabid witness for Christ. In other words, um, I would argue with people all the time about Christianity, and, and I would spend hours debating with my friends and trying to convince them that they should become a Christian like me, and I would reason with them and say, oh, come on, are you kidding me? You believe in, 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 uh, in, in uh, evolution, the Big Bang Theory? That's the, that'd be like a tornado saying, a tornado in a junkyard you know, goes through a junkyard, and then all of a sudden there's a Lamborghini sitting there. Seriously, you, you know that's ridiculous. And I'd be like, oh, that's a good one. How are they going to come back with that, you know, from that, right? Or I, I would, you know, remind them how ludicrous evolution was scientifically. I mean, the, it defies the laws of science itself. The law of entropy, everything goes from a state of order to disorder. So things aren't, things, instead of evolving, things are devolving. Science proves that. And I would typically end my conversations by saying something like this. You know, if I'm wrong and you're right, I've got nothing to lose. 
But if I'm right and you're wrong, you have everything to lose. Dun, dun, dun. See, evangelism for me was a battle of the minds. And me winning the debate or the argument depended on my ability to persuade my friends logically or provide them enough evidence to convince them that they need to become a Christian. But even back then, I noticed a couple things. First of all, I often got frustrated because I didn't seem to get anywhere with people. I saw very little fruit from all my evangelistic efforts. I find myself walking away oftentimes from a conversation thinking, oh, if I had only said that, if I had only remembered that piece of evidence or that story or that archaeological find, man, then they would have believed me. So I was frustrated often, but secondly, even though I appeared confident, I was actually frightened. I was scared to death that they might ask me something, a question I didn't know the answer to, or worse, they might reject me as a friend. Do you know why I was frustrated? Do you know why I was frightened when I was sharing my faith in Christ with people? Because I was doing it my way rather than God's way. My heart was right. I wanted to tell people about Jesus, but the way I was going about it was wrong. And I'll never forget one occasion when I was witnessing to Jennifer Nadu. She was a cute girl that I wanted to take out, but she wasn't a Christian. So I had to get her saved so that I could date her, right? And so, come on, let's be honest about my motives here, right? What was I really interested in? I wanted to take her out on a date, but I knew I couldn't, you know, Christian candidate, non-Christian, so let's get her saved, and then we can go to the movies together, right? So I remember this one night, I was witnessing to her, and, and, and I was on the phone. This was the day before we had cell phones and computers and all this kind of stuff, no internet, right? So we had a phone in our kitchen with one of those long dangly cords, you know those things that you could just like 25 foot and you could walk all around the kitchen and the living room. And so I was making laps, man. I was just like into the living room, into the dining room, back into the kitchen, and I'm just going to town and I am just, I'm bringing it. And I'm telling this girl all the reasons why she, she's a fool to believe all these things and that she needs to understand that the Bible is true and that there is a God. And, and, and so I'm just going on and on and on and on. Should have been doing my homework, but I was, you know, witnessing uh, instead to Jennifer. Um, and, and so my mom was washing the dishes, listening to this whole conversation. And she'd hear the conversation when I'd come blowing back into the kitchen and turn around and come back out. And right, she was listening to this conversation. So I noticed that she came over to the drawer by our phone and the little drawer there with a pencil and paper where we take notes and who called and stuff like that. This was the day before answering machines, right? And so you had to actually write down things to remember it. And so she pulled out a little piece of paper and she wrote a little, I saw her writing something and I'm still walking around. And, and then so finally I come back into the kitchen and I come over to the counter and I'm still talking to Jennifer and I'm reading this note that's on the counter while I'm talking to Jennifer, and this is what the note said. Ken, Jesus never argued with people. He just presented the truth and walked away and trusted God to save them. And I was like, hey, Jen, it's really been nice talking to you. Um, I got to go. <laughs> because I was so convicted by that little note my mom wrote. 
because I knew she was right. And my mom's not a theologian. She never went to Bible college or seminary. But in that little post-it note, if you will, she taught me the essence of everything I ever learned in Bible college and seminary about defending the Christian faith. There's basically two ways that you can defend the Christian faith. There's the evidential rational approach, and there's the presuppositional approach. Now, I know those are big words, and you're like, oh, time out. Can you spell that, right? What is the evidential rational approach? It's simply proving Christianity is true using reason and evidence. That's the evidential, evidence, rational, logic, right? Proving Christianity is true using reason and evidence. The presuppositional approach is simply presupposing that Christianity is true. In other words, it doesn't need to be argued about. It doesn't need to be proven. It is true. You know it's true, and whoever you're sharing the gospel with knows it's true too. And there is a colossal difference between proving Christianity is true and presupposing Christianity is true. And that difference makes all the difference when it comes to evangelism. And if you understand this simple, profound difference, I promise you it will totally revolutionize the way you share your faith. Because the bottom line of presuppositional apologetics is Christianity is not an opinion to be proved, it's a truth to be proclaimed. Let me say that again. Christianity is not an opinion to be proved. It's a truth to be proclaimed. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, we don't have to prove it. We just need to proclaim it. Since people already know it's true. We're going to talk about that in a second. Now, your initial response might be, well, wait a minute. That sounds way too easy. (laughs) Surely you don't expect my family members, my friends co-workers, they're just going to let me share the gospel with them and just say, this is the truth. You know it. I know it. The only question is, what are you going to do about it? The Bible says you need to repent of your sin. You're rebelling against God. Submit to his authority as your creator, as your sustainer, as your coming judge. You need to place your faith in Jesus' death on the cross. In your place, follow him as your Lord and master, period. End of discussion. Seriously? I mean, there's got to be a better way than that. Well, I would submit to you that the presuppositional way is not just the best way, it's the only way because it's God's way. I would be so bold to say that God is a presuppositionalist. You say, what are you talking about? Well, how does your Bible begin? Does anyone have a preface or an introduction where God says, now, first of all, before we get into this, let me give you some reasons why you should believe that I exist. Let me give you some evidence that I exist. No, how does the Bible start? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. God just introduces himself as if everybody knows he exists. He doesn't try to prove it, doesn't try to reason with people, rationalize logically. No, he just says, in the beginning, God. 
I love the way God shares the gospel. You ever think about that? God, wait, God shares the gospel? Yeah. In Isaiah 45, 22, he says this, turn to me all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, period. That's how God shares the gospel. Turn to me all the ends of the earth. In other words, repent, turn around, turn away from yourself and your sin to me, for I, why? Because I'm God and there's no other. So we know this is God's way, not only because of God's example, Genesis 1-1, Isaiah 45-22, but also because of God's word, because of what God says in his word. And there are two foundational truths that God has revealed in his word that compel us to evangelize presuppositionally. And if we're convinced of these um, two truths and committed to these two truths, we will be able to do evangelism God's way. And when we start evangelizing God's way, the frustration and the fear go away. Granted, there's always a bit of intimidation. I'm not going to rule that out completely. But generally speaking, the frustration and fear go away. Because as we're going to see, this takes all the pressure off us and puts it where it belongs on God and his word. I promise you that if you understand these two truths, I think it'll affect you the same way it affected me. This this was really the most freeing, liberating stuff I've ever learned. And um, you say, what are these two truths that will revolutionize the way I share my faith? You're going to be disappointed because like you were hoping it was going to be some new secret, Right? No, it was just, it's just going back to what we know the Bible teaches about two things. Number one, man's depravity and God's sovereignty. Man's depravity and God's sovereignty. Let me just remind you of what the Bible teaches regarding man's depravity. Some familiar verses, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By the way, the context is this is why God destroyed the world with the flood, the earth with the flood, right? Why he sent the global flood. Why? Because he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you see, like he's, there's the superlatives here, the, 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 the every, the only, the continually, right? We, we say as in biblical counseling, never say never or always, right? Well, God said, no, that applies when it comes to man's sinfulness. They were only and always constantly sinful. Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah 13, 23, an interesting little verse here. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? It's a rhetorical question, right? Can a black person change his skin color and become a white person? Or can a leopard trade in his spots for stripes? Say a leopard sees a tiger go by and go, oh, I wish I looked like that. I'm going to become a tiger. No, you're a leopard. You've got spots and that's just who you are, right? 
he says this, then, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, we as sinful human beings are accustomed to doing evil, and even if we're like, hey, I wish I could change, you can't. It's, it's who you are. Sin is innate. It's, it's inherent in us. Just as the color of the skin or the, the color of, 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 a, of a leopard's you know, coat, if you will, or fur. And then in more familiar territory, Romans chapter 1, we recently went through this. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal powers, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Nobody can say, well, I didn't know you existed. And God's like, come on. Are you serious? Look at all the ways I revealed my power and my glory. Verse 21, for even though they knew God. See, that's the point. They already know it's true. They're just acting like they don't believe it, Right? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans chapter 8, 7 and 8. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 14, familiar verse. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the natural man being the opposite of a spiritual man. Uh, in other words, this is somebody that does not have the Spirit of God in them. This is an unbeliever. You could say an unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, unbelievers are not about to put out a welcome mat for the gospel and, and they are not on the same wavelength as God. I mean, if, if you think about it, it's like man by nature has an AM radio and God's broadcasting on FM. You ever try to get a FM station on an AM? That's all. So you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and this is about what's going on in their mind. They're, they're not on the same frequency. They're not on the same wavelength. Lost people are like a blind man in an art gallery or a, a deaf man at a symphony. They can't see, they can't hear or appreciate truth. In fact, the Bible says that they are, what? Dead in their trespasses and sins. Completely unable to respond to the truth of God's word in and of themselves. And so depravity, man's depravity means that man is totally and completely corrupted with sin. Sin has affected us physically and mentally. That's what we call the noetic effects of sin. It, it, it affects the mind we will not, we cannot understand or accept the truth. We don't want to know the truth. And even if we did want to know the truth, we couldn't know it. So oftentimes theologians use the word inability as a synonymous term to depravity. Depravity is simply saying that there's an inability in man to respond to God in and of himself. And so that's man's depravity, but there's another truth in Scripture that is equally important, that is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And again, just some verses that, again, you're familiar with. 
Just to remind you of this doctrine of God's sovereignty, John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, it wasn't your will, it wasn't your decision, right, to become a Christian. It was God's decision. It was his will for you to get saved. John 6, 65 For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see us in that in any way? Me, 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 I, I, I. No, it's God, 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 God. He did it, he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it. And then, of course, Romans nine sixteen. so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Talking about Salvation. So sovereignty means that God is totally and completely in control of the process of salvation. We have absolutely nothing to do with it. God has everything to do with it. You could insert a word in place of sovereignty, and that would be ability. So we, when you talk about man, it's it's inability. When you talk about God, it's ability. Total depravity requires or demands total sovereignty. Since we can do nothing, God must do everything. And again, people sometimes have a hard time with reconciling things that sound like they conflict in our minds. Like, I don't understand that, you know, if, if, if you know, the Bible talks about I have a responsibility to to repent and believe, and yet the Bible also says that I can't do that unless he enables me to do that, and we get confused about these things, but I love when, I love when God puts these apparent contradictions side by side in the Bible as if he doesn't have a problem with them. There's no tension in his mind, even though there's a tension in our mind, there's no tension in his mind. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. It's a great description of man's depravity. Thankfully, that's not where the passage ends. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, being because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And so these two truths God, or man's depravity, God's sovereignty, are like two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. They're, they're side by side truths. They're, 
they, they, they hold hands. You can't have one without the other. And for those of you that are just waking up from your nap now, and you're thinking, well, I just want to know how to share my faith, and all you've done is give me a bunch of theology. Well, let's see how practical all this theology is in regards to evangelism. And the one line I remember more than any other line or statement from that summer two-unit class I took in seminary was the professor would always say, man, that's kind of how he talked, man, your theology must control your methodology. I wrote that down. Okay, my theology needs to control my methodology. In other words, what I believe the Bible teaches needs to control or affect or influence the way I preach and the way I counsel and the way I share the gospel. And so what I know about man's depravity and God's sovereignty must control the way I tell people about Jesus and the way I evangelize. And I guess you're going to have to come back next week to find out what that looks like because i got another half of a sermon to go here and it's 12 o'clock already. So um, we'll have to reconvene next week and talk about this. And um, trust me, it gets better. So come back, okay? You're like, oh, great. You gave us all the heady stuff and now we got to wait till next week to get to the practical stuff? Yeah. But uh, come back and we'll, we'll talk about it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us as we've waded into uh, what can be a very heady subject, the, the subject of apologetics and defending the Christian faith. And I trust I've made it simple and clear and understandable. But Lord, it really has the potential to revolutionize the way we evangelize when we consider man's depravity and your sovereignty and that, that ultimately there's nothing we can do. We can talk till we're blue in the face with someone and unless your word and your spirit accomplish your work in their lives, they're never going to come to know you. And so, Lord, that just makes us desperately dependent upon you to accomplish the work and that we shouldn't live with the pressure of having to seal the deal and convince people and persuade people and have all the answers to all their questions, but simply point them back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, would you begin freeing us and liberating us from those things that just discourage us and frustrate us and intimidate us about sharing the gospel with others? And Lord, I pray as we read this book together as a church, that you would infuse into our DNA as a church, if you will, the, the, this culture of evangelism, this passion for lost people, telling them the good news of salvation, winning them to Christ. And so we, we know you can do that. Only you can change us 
And so we ask you to do that for your glory, for our good and the good of those people in our community who desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.